If you were a first century Jewish person, so somebody in the context of Jesus, so a person who follows Yahweh, if you were a first century Jewish person, you would have a thought in your mind constantly. And the thought in your mind is this, you are one generation away from being wiped out. This was a common thought of a Jewish person. In fact, probably many Jewish people today still have this thought. This thought comes from a place where if you follow the story of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, you see how over time they sometimes forgot about who they were and how they practiced, and sometimes they'd be invaded and there'd be uh, great tragedies that happen and they'd disconnect from God and they'd have this constant reminder of, you are close to being wiped out. And so if you're a first century Jewish person, you have this in your mind. And one of the ways that they chose, very wisely chose, to make sure that would never happen is they excelled in their education. For a first century Jewish person, if you had a child, you would make sure their education in who God is was a priority. And you would invest your child's early life into that. There is a saying in the Talmud which goes like this. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinic sayings based on scripture and kind of like how do you live your life as a Jewish person. It says this, before the age of six, do not accept pupils. From that age, you can accept them and stuff them with Torah like an ox. Imagine that was the slogan for your kid's school. We're going to stuff your kid like an ox with education. This is a rabbinic saying that's in this recorded there because they understood they needed to feed this to children. So before the age of six, they had no responsibilities in learning. But once they were the age of six, they would enter into a school system. And the first step would be best affair. And in best affair, you're between the ages of six and ten. And your priority, your priority is that you would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So if you've been reading your Bible, if you've been joining us in our Bible uh, reading program that we've been doing online, you've read through almost all of Genesis. It's taken you a couple of weeks now. Imagine having to memorize all of that and four other books. There's a lot of words there. There's a lot of statements there. But between the ages of 6 and 10, the priority was that they would memorize these words. On their first day of school, what they would do, there's this rabbinic teaching that they would have a slate, so they would mark stuff on it, and what the rabbi would do is they would cover it in honey and tell them to taste it, for the word of the Lord is sweet. It was kind of this memorable moment for them to remember that what they were about to learn was sweet to them. So from 6 to 10, you're memorizing those first five books of the Bible. Then, from 10 to 14, you'd be in Bet Talmud. So it's like your junior high, and you'd memorize the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of it. So all the prophets, all the Proverbs, all the Psalms, all the historical narratives of kings and chronicles, all those kinds of things. If you're in the Bible reading program, you'll realize it takes us a long time to get through that. Why? Because there's a lot there. So from 11 to 14, you've got to memorize it. 
And within that memorization time, you're also learning from these rabbis, these teachers. And they're teaching you how to interpret and understand and apply these things. And so until you're 14, you've gone through all this. And the chances are, everybody 6 to 10 memorizes their Torah. They memorize it. They do well. But once it gets into this phase, this basically junior high phase, it gets a little more challenging. Some of you who are close to the age of 14, try to think about all the things you'd have to memorize to be close to what's in the Old Testament. It's a lot. But that was what they did. And as they were learning about how to apply it and what it means and all this teaching, they'd come to that age 14, and then there becomes an opportunity. And the opportunity was, do you go on to further education, just like how we would think about university or college, or do you go into your family business? For most people living in the first century world, if they were Jewish, the priority, the, the emphasis would be like, we go further in our education, because that would be the most noble thing you would do at that time. Because if you go further into your education, what you're doing is preparing yourself to be a teacher, to be a rabbi, to be someone who would teach others what you've just been learning. And so there's a next phase called Bet Midrash, and Midrash is kind of that discourse about these scriptures. And so you would learn from a rabbi, and they would teach you their way, and you would learn their way, and the whole idea was you'd be their disciple, and then you would share that later on. The thing was, this is a very competitive process. Just like trying to apply to university, maybe in a very difficult program, a student who's gone through memorizing the Torah, memorizing the rest of the Old Testament, would have to apply to a rabbi and say, I want to be your student. And the way they would do that is they would be quizzed on the spot about all the things they memorized. And so the rabbi would be inquisitive of them, and only the best of the best of the best would get through. And from the understanding of history is that that was the goal. That was the goal. To be a rabbi was the ultimate goal, but not everybody got there. And so as they were trying to become like that, many would be rejected. And only the best would make it through. And so if you didn't make the cut, you went and worked for your family. Pretty simple. So in the world that Jesus grew up in, this is a system he entered into. This is a system that his followers entered into. It's just the way the world was. And so all the followers of Jesus went through this early education system to memorize Scripture, to be intimate with it, to understand who God is, so that they could pass it on. So let's jump into the story of Jesus' followers. In Luke chapter 5, we come to this interesting story that I really like about Peter. Now, the interesting thing about Peter is that if you read the Gospel of Luke, this isn't the first encounter with Peter. There's something that happens just before this that I always forget about, and maybe you do too. In chapter 4, Jesus goes into Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is sick. And so he heals her so that his mother-in-law can wait on them. That's our first encounter with Peter. I always forget that story. But then you get into chapter 5. It says, One day... As Jesus was standing by the lake Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, 
and asked him to put out a little from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus has been teaching. He's teaching this group of people. They're listening to him. He's on the shore. And he sees the boats out in the distance. They're getting their nets cleaned up. Why? Because they had been fishing. They're doing their job. And Simon, whose home he had just been in the day before, is in one of the boats. And he says, let's, let's go out in the boat. And he sits down. And as I was reading about this, the more information, he was sitting down because that's the teaching pose. I had no idea. For 10 years, I'd been standing here. I should have been sitting. <laughs> but Jesus sits down in the boat and continues to teach. Now, imagine, imagine yourself in this moment, okay? Imagine you're Peter. And maybe it's hard to imagine fishing as a career, so let's, let's try to make it something more contemporary. Imagine you're like a taxi driver or an Uber driver, because nobody uses taxis anymore, right? And you're an Uber driver, and you're sitting in your car, and you see Jesus, you have your window down, and Jesus just gets into your car. How do you feel? You're like, this is a little weird. First, he came into my house randomly the day before, and he healed my mother-in-law. And now he's in my car. So for Peter, he's in his place of work. He's in his boat. And Jesus is like, let's get in the boat and keep, let me keep doing my thing. Let me keep teaching. It would be a little strange. But Peter goes with it. And Jesus sits down. He's teaching. And they keep going. It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. This is an interesting reaction. So Jesus has done his thing, which is teaching. And he says, Simon, or Peter, go do some more work. And he says, well, Master. Interestingly, he uses words Master. The word Master is epistata, which means the one who stands by which is a very interesting statement that Peter makes. And it's only used in Luke's gospel, and five of the seven times it's used by Peter to talk about Jesus. He says, well, Master, I've been working all night. I, I was doing everything I could. It wasn't a successful night. Why would I try again? But he says, you're the master, so I'll let it down. It says, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full, they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. So Jesus tells them to cast the net down. They cast the net down. They get so many fish. And Peter, Simon Peter, his tone changes. He goes from calling him master to calling him Lord and being fearful. There's a moment in there where Peter kind of just realizes, whoa, what's this all about? Now remember, the night before, day before, Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And after he healed his mother-in-law, people started bringing their sick to Jesus, and he kept healing people. 
Likely, Simon Peter was around. Maybe he had left already to go to work. We don't know. But that morning, after Jesus is teaching, and he says, let's go out a little further, let's go back to work, let's lay down our nets, and they lay down their nets, and they get this miraculous catch. Peter is struck by the miracle of the moment and recognizes that Jesus is more than just master, but Lord, and is afraid. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The words that get used here, do not be afraid, like we often think, like, you know, don't be scared, but the word is very different. It's actually don't be fearful, right? So when we're scared, there's something that happens that scares us. Maybe we watched a scary movie, maybe somebody jumped out at us and we're like, oh, we're scared whatever it might be. But to be fearful is a character trait. It's something inside of us that is continuous. We're always scared. He says, don't be fearful. I've got something for you. You're going to fish for people. And what do they do? They leave their nets. They leave their livelihood. And they follow him. This is Peter's initiation into being the disciple of Jesus, to being an apostle of Jesus. And he leaves everything behind to follow him. And in following him, what happens? Well, what would happen if you went to work one day and decided never to show off again? You probably wouldn't go back to work again, right? There's a good chance your boss wouldn't be too happy with you. Now, if it's your only form of livelihood and it's actually you're your own boss, maybe you have some more opportunities there. But Peter leaves his livelihood, leaves what supported his family, what he was doing probably since he was about 14, because he didn't make the cut in being a rabbi. He wasn't good enough to be someone who was teaching others. He just couldn't hack it. So what does he do? He joins his father's business. He's a fisherman. Nothing wrong with that. But then Jesus encounters him. And he has an invitation. And that invitation is to follow him. Peter should know from the interaction of what Jesus has been doing, he's been teaching. So Jesus steps into that role of the rabbi, the teacher, that he probably at a young age wanted to accomplish but could not accomplish because he wasn't good enough. And so he recognizes Jesus probably for who he is in the statement of my Lord. And then Jesus invites him, as well as the others who are with him, to follow him. Which is different than what a rabbi would do in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, you had to apply to that teacher. Say, let me do this. And Jesus says, I invite you to follow me. What makes Jesus do that? Why would he choose someone who was not good enough to follow him? Why would he choose someone if those of us who are familiar with the story, we know further on, denies him and goes back to fishing after Jesus' death? Why would Jesus do that? Well, there's a good chance that the invitation from Jesus is that he sees something in Peter that he can't see yet. 
When Jesus invites Peter to follow him, he invites him to a life of emulating him. To follow the rabbi, to follow the teacher, was to be like them. You listen to their teachings, you watch them do what they do, and then you do it. That's the purpose. That invitation to Peter is the same invitation to everyone, to follow Jesus. And we kind of lost that understanding of what that looks like because, well, we're not first century Jewish people who are concerned about, you know, the next generation being the last generation. And we haven't really invested maybe the same amount of time into getting to know who Jesus really is. But there's a spiritual invitation to follow him in a similar way that Peter did. Because in the same way, Jesus sees something in you you may not see yet. Jesus sees something in you that is much better than you could probably imagine. And he invites you to discover it. As you look at the story of Peter, which we're not going to spend all of our time doing this morning, but I'd love for you to do that on your own. You see the moments in his life where he has to choose. Do I follow Jesus in this? Sometimes he does, and then he doesn't. You see how he believes in himself, and then he doesn't. And much like us, we do that over and over and over again. Because it's not easy to see in us what Jesus sees. But the truth is that, and the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, you are God's masterpiece. That you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Jesus sees something in you that you might not see yet, and he invites you to follow him so that you can discover it. That's the invitation to be Jesus-centered. It's to make it a priority to follow Jesus as the spiritual authority, as the rabbi in our lives, so that when we follow, we listen to his teachings We see what he's done and how he acted, and we emulate it and apply it in our lives. To be Jesus-centered, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be like Jesus to the world around us. It's to recognize that you are God's masterpiece. I've talked about this many times because I love this passage. It's this word poema. You are God's beautiful work of art. And why are you that beautiful work of art? Well, you've been made for something. For good works long ago, you don't even realize you're made for. And Jesus' invitation to follow him is to discover that and discover who you are in the midst of it. You may have gone through life and had experiences where you felt like, well, actually, I'm not that good. Maybe you, like Peter, went through school to a certain point and you barely got through. And as you got into that last year of high school, you thought, there's no chance of me having a future here. You kind of said, I'm no good at this. Or maybe you even did get through. You went to university and you realized how difficult it is and you got a job. And you were trying and trying and trying, but you could not make it work. And you thought, I'm just worthless. Or maybe you were in a dysfunctional relationship, whether it's your family or a romantic one where they kept telling you over and over again, you're nothing. What you see in yourself is not what Jesus sees. You are 
is masterpiece. And you were created for something good. And to discover it, you have to follow him. That's what Peter had to do. He had to choose between what he knew he could do, which was fish, and if we read this story, he wasn't even very good at that. He had to choose between the only thing he knew he could get away with doing and not be fearful, but choose to follow Jesus. What are we scared of in following Jesus? What fearfulness might we have if we say yes to that invitation to Jesus to follow him? What might we have to leave behind? The invitation to follow Jesus is not easy. Uh, It comes up again in Scripture. It means that we have to surrender, and that's a tough word, surrender our will, our hopes, and our preferences in following him. In Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus says this, says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. There is nothing appealing about taking up a cross in Jesus' world. And the invitation to be his follower is to let go of what you're holding and picking up his suffering. Many of us would say, maybe not. Maybe not. That sounds kind of tough. And understandably. If we know the story of Peter, outside of Scripture as well, we, so there's a lot of history there. The story of Peter is such that he denied Jesus. We, we talk about that often on Good Friday. And then he gets reinstated by Jesus on the beach. It's an amazingly beautiful picture in John's Gospel at the end of it. And then in the book of Acts, we see how he leads this movement of Jesus' followers And sometimes he messes up, and sometimes he's bold, and it's wonderful. And there's this legend, this story of how people used to mock him by making crow or rooster crowing while he was speaking to remind him of how he betrayed Jesus. And if we go a little further in his story, we know he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy enough to be crucified like Jesus. That's picking up your cross daily. That's tough. Thankfully, we live in a world where hopefully that won't happen in the physical sense. But there's a spiritual invitation to pick our cross up daily and follow him. And this weird reality of it is this, is that as we choose, as we choose to forfeit what we want, God shows us the good that we may never have seen before. It's this ironic moment that God brings into light what could be when we choose to let go of ourselves. In Mark's gospel, Mark verse 8, 35, Jesus says that whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This strange paradigm that when we choose to give up what we want, our preferences, our desires, our meanness, and embrace being Jesus-centered and following him, he gives us life. And in John's gospel, life in all of its fullness. Because we discover what we haven't been able to discover, that you are God's 
masterpiece, created for good works long ago. And in Jesus, we discover this. So we need to prioritize what does it mean to follow and be Jesus-centered. What does it look like in you know, a 21st century world to be following Jesus? We don't have the same challenges the first century world had that the immediate followers of Jesus faced being an illegal religion. But what does it mean for us today? Maybe there's a lot we could learn, especially around our education system of not necessarily talking about school, but like even in the church, how do we teach our kids to be centered around Jesus? But what does it mean for us personally? Well, I think it means that you need to follow and follow closely, consistently. Because it's in the closeness, when you, a word that gets used in Scripture, abide with him, that you flourish. John 15.5, Jesus uses this image of uh, the vine and the branches. And that when you are connected with him, you will bear much fruit. And when you're disconnected, really nothing comes from that. So how do you maintain that? How do you stay close to Jesus as you follow him? Uh, John C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop in the, I guess, 1800s, said to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion, with him to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our foundation of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To follow and stay close to Jesus is to have a relationship like this, a relationship that is embedded in who we are of a constant habit, to maintain that closeness with Jesus. For Peter, in some ways it was easy. He followed Jesus in his daily life for three years. And even though he did that, when the time came, he went back to fishing. We have it even harder. Because the reality is that there's not a physical Jesus in this room at this moment in the person of the Trinitarian God. So you can't just be like, hey, Jesus, I'm following you for three years. So you have to make an effort to abide, to stay close in following him. And will you do that in a few different ways? One is by reading scripture. You need to read who Jesus is. We have these stories for a reason. It shows us who he is, what it means to follow him, the good and the bad when people listened or didn't. We need to read. And as we read, we discover him more and more. In our Bible reading group, I mentioned that there's this old saying of Scripture is like a many-sided gem that when you turn it, it shines a different side of its beauty. So you might have read the Bible a billion times, which I don't know how anyone could do. But keep reading it. Because there's more there than you realize. And God brings things out through the power of the Holy Spirit that you may not have noticed before. So read your scriptures. Spend time in God's Word. That's what people did, people like Peter, for the first eight years of their lives. Or not the first, but eight years after their six. They spent their time saturating in these words to let them embody them, to be who they are. So read. Also pray. Spend time in communion 
with God, having conversations, engaging him through your requests, but also through your prayers of appreciation, gratitude, making that a priority, so that as you pray, it's conversational, where you are listening as well as speaking. And the third one is to seek. Seek his guidance in your prayers, in your scripture reading, and apply it to your life. Essentially, that's what following Jesus was in the first century. They listened to him, they conversed with him, and then they applied what they got out of that. We can still do that today. We still need to do that today. Because when we follow Jesus, we can discover who we really are and what we've always been meant for. That maybe in our greatest efforts we desire, but haven't accepted or received it yet. It's only in Jesus that we can find life in all of its fullness as he offers. And when we become Christ-centered, it means we follow him and we stay close to him. Because that's not easy to do, but it's so worth it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you invite us into communion with you, in relationship, in community. That you are a God who invites us uh, to know you, to know you through the person of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that as we know you, as we spend time with you, as we speak with you, as we hear from you, we discover ourselves too. I thank you that you say we are your greatest work, your masterpiece. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. I pray that maybe we're someone who is wrestling with that feeling right now, not feeling like we are good enough or we belong or we're loved or worth loving. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we can stop those thoughts for a moment and hear what is true, that Jesus, you died for us. And you said we are worth it. That we are your masterpiece. And you have something for us better than we can imagine. I pray we know that to be true. And as we hear that invitation, Lord, I pray we follow you. And we stay close to you. Because in you there is life and there is hope. And there is a goodness beyond what we can experience on our own. Help us to see it, even when life doesn't seem very hopeful or good or worthwhile. Help us to stay close to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd love for you to join us after service for a coffee and conversation. And I pray you know that you are God's masterpiece and you are made for something great even when it's hard to know what that is. But in following him, you can find out for real. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.